Croeso Mawr. My guest on episode 5 of the Leanne Wood podcast is someone who can teach us a lot about building a movement. The vast majority of our social gains have come about because of the strength of a movement of people. Building alliances, being united, pulling together towards common goals, that's what wins in politics. Selma James has an incredible wealth of political campaigning experience. She is now in her ninth decade of socialist activism. Selma was born into a Jewish family in New York in 1930. She married the famous cricket commentator and Marxist black thinker C.L.R. James, and they moved together to the UK in the 1950s when he was expelled from the USA under the McCarthy purges. She's played an important role in anti-racist politics. Selma is working class, and from a young age, she could see how women's struggles from her class, our class, the economic struggles providing work for free in the form of care and housework was ignored by feminists who were more keen on working on industrial childcare and careers. To this day, so many women work a double day. We have to go out to work for pay and then do the bulk of work at home for free. Selma James formed the International Wages for Housework campaign in 1972, almost 50 years ago. That campaign is now the Global Women's Strike, and it's a campaign that has seen many successes in many countries since it was started. Can I start by welcoming you to the podcast, Selma, and asking you firstly to tell us about the campaigning work that you've been involved in over the years and what you're working on now? Oh, thank you. I'm really glad to be here and really delighted to be questioned by you because your questions will be clever. I joined the Marxist movement, the socialist movement, when I was about 15. We were always aware of the movement and the movement of the 30s was very big. It was massive. It was anti-racist. There were things about it that were anti-sexist too. And it was a working class movement to form trade unions. A lot of men were out on strike, but often the women were there making sure that they ate regularly. Some of them ate at our house. And it was also the time when the troops came to shoot the workers and the women went between the workers and the guns and the gunmen retired. And that was really a high point of moving the, move, moving the class forward and really making trade unions legal. Well, I wasn't in any of that. I was in one of the households that was involved in that. And I got my basic education there. And so by the time I was 15, I was ready to join a socialist organization and be part of the movement in my own name. It took me a while to understand a lot because that's the first thing I'd come into the movement to do was to understand how the society actually worked and 
how we could change it. And I spent a few years at that, just absorbing what was known and what was the history. We learned about the abolitionist movement, the movement to liberate the slaves. And I remember CLR, whom I married much later, used to say, they said that Lincoln freed the slaves, but it was really the slaves that freed Lincoln so that he could think better and differently about what the United States was able to do. I plunged into politics, really. When I went to England, I was 25, and Nello CLR had been deported, as you say, and I joined him, and I was soon involved in the anti-imperialist struggle, which he was involved in. Kenya people were being persecuted because they wanted to be independent. And I was doing typing for them and learning all I could. And I understood the world was much bigger than I had known it to be when I was born and grew up in Brooklyn, New York. But also by that time, I had become interested in women doing all this work, this reproductive work, this housework, this caring work, a lot of protective work, this work of protecting their children from racism, from class prejudice, and trying not to be poor, trying to feed them three meals a day. And that was a struggle for many millions that I had known in the US. And the same struggle, of course, was going on in the UK. Um, I went with CLR to the West Indies, first to because we were invited there because a federation had formed, but then they asked him to stay, and we stayed, and my little son, who was about nine at the time, he came, the three of us were living in Trinidad and working on the independence movement, but especially working on the movement of federation of the West Indian colonies, as they were then, West Indian islands, so they could be together and when they became independent. That didn't work out, and we were heartbroken because we thought the stronger they were as a unit, the more they could be independent from the imperialists who didn't go away when you became independent. They then stayed and tried to undermine what you had built and the movement that your people had formed. So I learned a lot and I learned a lot about government there because I was close to it. I learned a lot so that when we got back to England, I was well able to be part of the anti-racist movement. Many of those people were West Indians, were from the islands that I had been part of for five years of my life. It has helped me ever since. When the women's movement began, I found myself part of it. And I soon learned that in the United States, there was a massive women's movement, but in fact, Looking again, there were two women's movements. One was white and on the whole middle class. And one was women of color, black women, Latino women who fought for welfare, for the right to some money from the state for the work that they were doing as mothers. 
And that stuck in my brain as something I had to find out more about. And ultimately, I read Marx in a group, and we didn't know what we were reading, but we were reading it. And in fact, we found out a lot. And one of the things that was amazing to me was that Marx said that the crucial commodity of capitalism is labor power, that is, the working class. And I said, well, that's women's work. We make the working class. We give birth to it. We train. We do everything. And I thought, why didn't these people tell me that Marx said that women's work was central? And in 1972, we started the International Wages for Housework campaign. Now, I want to say something about that word international, because there isn't any movement unless it is international. We can't be anti-racist unless we know the many ways in which people organize and express themselves, their language, their way of life, and their struggle. And I was interested in the struggle of women. Many, many women are subsistence farmers and feed their families from the work they do on the land. 80% of Africa lived off women's subsistence agriculture. And then when you saw the figures, they say, well, women don't work. Well, excuse me, if they weren't working, you wouldn't be eating. And we decided as a campaign to demand that women's work be counted in national statistics. And then we met a lovely woman from the Office of Women Workers Questions at the ILO, and she said, women do two-thirds of the world's work for 10% of the income, and some people say it's 5%. And we popularized that figure. We went everywhere. We translated it to let women know that they were doing two-thirds of the world's work. And in spite of that, they were the poorer sex. We were always trying to find some money of our own. So that's what we've been doing ever since, developing the whole understanding that women produce all the people of the world, the whole population of the world, and never get money for doing that central work of making the people in the community. And that's fundamentally what the Wages for Housework campaign has been saying it the message from that campaign is as relevant now as it ever was. There's a shortage of paid carers now. Caring work is still amongst the lowest paid work, the least valued work around. And we've been in a pandemic now for more than a year and a half. So the need for care is growing. Most care is still provided for free. What would you say are the differences in the positions of carers now to when you started the Wages for Housework campaign in the early 1970s? There is some awareness that most women who are mothers are carers, that fundamentally the caring work of the society is done by mothers, whether we are married or not, or at every age. And that has changed. Not that we are caring less, although we have less time to care because we do the work outside the home as well. But people are more aware that when they used to ask women, what did you do all day? They would say, well, nothing. I was just home with the family. But now you can't say that to women 
They don't believe they've been doing nothing all day. What have you been doing all day? I've been working very hard, raising my children and taking care of my ailing mother. And my neighbor needs my help because she has a sick child and somebody else has a child with disabilities. And I help them and they help me. And the work of the community is the work women have been doing. And it is the central work of every civilization. If you go out to work as a carer, you are very low paid because this is work that is labeled not payable in the sense that because we don't get wages for our work of reproducing the whole human race, the carers, others who are doing this work, not for a family, but for a company and individuals in the community, the pay is unbelievably low. And they're short of workers right now because carers are exhausted. The question of caring is the central question of changing the world from war economy to taking care of people. You're so right. If we put care at the center of, of what we do, we would have very different uh, outcomes. You've always insisted, Selma, on the importance of recognising the various and multiple ways in which people can be discriminated against or oppressed and how people shouldn't have to choose between being gay or black or a woman or disabled, that our campaigning has to take account of all differences and address the needs of all groups. There have been criticisms of the feminist movement for failing to consider the perspectives of black women or working class women and the failure to campaign for women to be paid to care for their own children is one good example of that. You've written extensively about this. Can you explain why it's so important to listen to all voices, especially working class voices, and how power can distort campaigning priorities? The first thing is that in the 60s, a number of movements formed, and the first movement that I knew about was the independence movement where people wanted their own country back. That was the most massive movement that the world has ever seen and largely peaceful because when the people got together, there was no saying no to them. Black people formed their own movement. And then women in that movement formed their own movement. And then other women formed their own movement. And then gay men formed a movement. And then lesbian women came out of the gay men movement and formed their own movement. And people with disabilities formed a movement against the exploitation and the demeaning that those of us with disabilities... I saw competition between movements, who was going to get the resources and who was most exploited. And ultimately, I wrote something called Sex, Race and Class and talked about the fact that every sector may want a movement to express their views, to express their particular needs and fight for their demands. But they were not to be competing with other movements. They had to see their own movement as part of the same movement that other people had formed for their own demands and for their own sector, and that we could be independent, independent of other movements, but open to working with other movements, open to seeing 
how that other movement can be useful to you and that you can be useful to it. And so little by little, the Wages for Housework campaign began to have within it independent organizations, autonomous organizations of lesbian women, of sex workers, of women with disabilities, also had connection with men with disabilities, of women of color, of single mothers, that kind of organization, which represents the particular demands of every sector that is organizing autonomously and working with other sectors, we work together as different sectors. Nobody leaves out her, and there is a men's group, or his needs, concerns, demands. But there are ways of working together where others want to make demands, some demands with you, and you with them. The differences between you become a power among you. And we're all anti-imperialists. We are not on the side of the oppressor, but always on the side of the oppressed. I know that you've been interested in this country for quite some time, and that interest led you to being part of a group that made a short film about women in Rhonda in the 1970s. And you've also talked about independence more widely, and you've warned about a flag and national anthem independence with the personally ambitious in charge, ready to make a deal. Wales can learn from your experience of international political involvement or over a long period of time. What do you think those lessons for Wales are? I can only say, of course, from outside, which means I'm limited. But one thing I've seen, people who, like yourself, and you're rare enough, want to work for the people and support what the people's demands are, have the problem that you enter into a state which is not constructed to get people's views, concerns, and demands and power to get them spoken about, develop, discuss, and then make sure the changes are made that they want made. It's very hard. You have to build a movement that is independent of the state and that is always there making the case of people outside of Parliament. I must say that my experience in Wales and my experience in Scotland, let alone my experience in Ireland, is that England think, and London in particular, often acts like an imperial power in relation to these other nations. And there is definitely a feeling in these other countries, which is absolutely justified, I find, that they are dominated by London. It's very hard not to be when you are not at the center and not as the richest part of this United Kingdom, which is not that united. What should we be doing now, Selma? Those of us who recognize that the struggles of so many people are, are all connected, what should our priorities be in this climate now where the right and those who want to keep us in our place seem able to keep growing their support? 
What we are trying to organize for is a care income. And when we say for caring, we mean for caring for people and for the planet. Uh, it's part of the Green New Deal for Europe. The care income, because it's also caring for the land, caring for the soil especially, and caring for the environment generally. We are plundered as workers, but the planet is plundered. We don't want that kind of a world. We want a caring world. And it begins with caring for each other and caring for the planet. We want to be part of a caring society where we too are cared for and where the animals are cared for and where the soil is cared for and where the food we eat is cared for. I think we, we want another world, really. Another world is the demand. It is possible. Selma, you've spent your entire life trying to help create another world, a different world, a more caring and compassionate world where violence isn't the norm and where people aren't exploited and where people are enabled to do that very basic thing of caring for those that they love, but without having to do that for no recompense. Selma, you've been a fantastic guest on my podcast. It's been wonderful to listen to your voice again. Thank you so much for your contribution to the Leanne Wood podcast. I'm very grateful that you've let me speak. Selma James is a real inspiration to me. I've learned so much from her wise counsel and she's been incredibly generous in sharing her experiences with me over the years. Her new book, Our Time Is Now, Sex, Race, Class and Caring for the Planet is published by PM Press. It's been a real privilege to speak to Selma James on the Leanne Wood podcast. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast. Podcast.